As I was preparing for the message this morning, my mind went to an opening statement, humorous, can be used to open uh, a speech, and it goes something like, uh, ladles and jelly spoons, I stand before you to sit behind you to tell you something I know nothing about. One bright morning in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. The deaf policeman heard the noise. Up he came and shot the two dead boys. If you don't believe this lie is true, ask the blind men. They saw it too. This morning, we're going to be looking at the blind men who actually did see. They saw everything going up through the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, many of the events, and I'm sure all the way to Calvary. As we look at the end of chapter 20, as we continue through our series in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, uh, th- there's an event that takes place just, just before the entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to look at the last few verses of the chapter, chapter uh, verses 29 to 34 of chapter 20. And it says here, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the, Lord, uh, all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Reminded me of an old song that part of which goes, Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. That, that should be on the tip of our tongues every time we open God's word. Show me what you want to, have, uh, what you want to say to us this morning. Now this story here, this is a very simple story, it's very straightforward, easy to understand. Um, It's not even an unusual event in the life of Jesus. In fact, it sounds very similar to many other uh, healing stories that we have already looked at through Matthew as we've gone through this study. Uh, This kind of thing happened almost every day during the three-year period that Jesus was ministering. And in fact, Uh, He did so many of them, the very last verse of the Gospel of John, he writes, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would would be written. Oh, I wish they had been written. (laughs) It would have been fascinating, wouldn't it? So why this story? Why this story? Why is it here as Jesus goes to Jerusalem to die? Why stop in the progress of such a great event as a Passover, as he's going to be the Passover lamb, slain from the foundation of the earth? Why stop to include the story of two blind men? Well, I think among many possible reasons, 
The word that really jumps out to me is in verse 34, and that's the word compassion. Even if we find no other lessons in, in, this, uh, in this story, which we will, I think the most profound truth that grabs our attention is that Jesus is compassionate. He was full of compassion. Now, if you haven't lived in a situation similar to what takes place here, uh, where there are many beggars and things of that sort, it may be hard to understand or comprehend how people who were alongside the road begging for one purpose or another, who were suffering physically, perhaps uh, suffering spiritually, became an irritant, a distraction, a bother, somebody just to ignore. They became part of the scenery and you just kind of walked by them. When I was a kid in India growing up, uh, my parents moved to Bombay, and when we came back from vacation from our boarding school, we would go to this city, and we'd, we'd go around the city with my, with my dad, and almost on every corner, there was a beggar. Um, they may have been uh, uh, lame, uh, they're perhaps just poor, uh, maimed. Uh, some parents would actually maim them so the kids could go out because that was a very good source of income, being, going out and begging. Um, but, but as a kid, they were irritating. <laughs> they were there, they're calling out to you. We walk by, they try to touch your leg to get your attention. And, just, and, and you just kind of get used to it and try to ignore it. That can be said about the people there in the time of Jesus. Beggars became a bother. Um, some, something one's mind would just kind of get used to and begin to ignore. But I believe Jesus felt their pain and became, um, and there rose in his heart a sympathy and empathy and allowed his or brought his compassion out for them. And while the world wanted to silence these kinds of people, wanted to make sure they didn't get in the way or interrupt anything, Jesus wanted to stop. Listen, and not only hear their need, but to do something about their need. So we're seeing here a demonstration of the heart of God, which is a heart of compassion. We can imagine that Jesus would have been kind of preoccupied at this moment in time with his disciples, knowing that just in a few days he's going to be gone. And uh, his disciples, they're going to have to begin his church. There's this had to be so much more that Jesus wanted to impart to them, so much more that Jesus wanted to talk to his disciples about, so much more that he wanted to teach them with only a few days left. And I can imagine that he could have been very distracted with the events that were about to happen, that he had already prophesied about. He knew the suffering that he was going to go through. As he looked up there on the hill and uh, saw Jerusalem, uh, up on the top of that hill, there was a place that he was going to be sacrificed as the final sacrificial lamb. It would be easy for us to understand that he really didn't have time in this particular moment in history to stop and take care of a couple blind men. But he did. He made time and he stopped. And because of his compassion, Jesus always had time. Jesus always has time. Present tense. And Jesus is not too busy redeeming the entire world to give uh, sight to two insignificant blind men who had nothing to offer him but their problems. That in itself is a profound lesson for us to wrap our minds around. 
We need to understand that no matter how insignificant a problem of ours may be or how insignificant we feel we may be, he has time. He has time to listen and time to work. Just think about that. The creator of the universe has time to listen to you, to talk to you. That's amazing. You know, in our, in our corporate world, the, the boss usually has very little time to deal with the humdrum stuff of the regular employees. He's got, he's got managers and supervisors to do that kind of thing. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a job. I had forgotten about this example uh, until recently. I had a job in uh, Sears in the, in the credit department, Credit Central. And there's a huge space underneath a store. And there was one manager over the whole Credit Central, but then it was, had about eight different divisions with a manager for each division. Some had assistant managers, some had supervisors. Um, one day I, I, I went for my break and another employee went with me and we went to a vending machine and um, my, uh, the, the gal that was, uh, went, went with me to the uh, vending machine, she went and she wanted a, a bag of uh, deep fried uh, pork rind. I don't know if they have those in vending machines anymore. But she got a quarter out, popped it in, and you know, you know, you hit the button, and the thing goes, and then it stopped, and the bag was stuck there. And I couldn't believe it, you know, and we're trying, what are we going to do? And just at that moment, Mr. Davies, the manager over the whole credit central, manager over all the other managers, he walks into the break room. And he said, what's the problem? Well, she, she wanted this bag of pork rind, and he reached in his pocket out, got two quarters. Pop one in, pop the second one in, two bags popped out, gave her the one, and he walked out with a bag of pork rinds. I don't think he probably came in to get a bag of pork rinds. But he was concerned about his employees, and he touched them with an act of kindness. Folks, Jesus always has time for you and for your needs. Now, blindness was a very common thing in biblical times. Physical blindness happened quite often uh, due to poverty, lack of medical care, unsanitary conditions, brilliant sunlight, blowing sand, uh, certain, types of certain types of bacteria from the birthing process could cause permanent blindness. I believe today uh, nurses quickly put uh, ointment in babies' eyes to, to protect from that uh, happening. But even more common than physical blindness was spiritual blindness. And metaphorically, the Gospels and the Epistles speak often about the blindness of the heart. In fact, John 1, speaking of Jesus coming into the world, says in verse 9, the, the, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not re recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They could not see the true light because they were spiritually blind. Chapter 3 says, People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In 2 Corinthians 3.14 it says, But their minds were made dull. The King James translates as their minds were blinded. And I looked up the, the word in Greek there, and it literally means to cover with a thick skin, to harden by covering with a callus. You know what happens when you get a callus on your hand? It kind of numbs the, uh, the sensation. 
And if you get this thick covering over your eye, uh, it's, it's like cataracts that could lead to blindness as well. It dulls the, the, the vision. In Jesus' words in Matthew 23, he says, Woe unto you blind guides, you blind Pharisees. They were spiritually blind. Now, in the case of these two men, it's really interesting because even though they were physically blind, they could not see, they seemed to have an unusual, clear, spiritual sight. And we'll see that in just a moment. The question becomes, why are people spiritually blind? Well, the basic, simple, blunt answer is sin. We're born with a sinful nature. We are born with a spiritual blindness. In Matthew 6, 23, it says, But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's the severe darkness of sin. Not only do, do we start life in darkness due to the sinful nature that we're born with, but Satan seems to be able to doubly blind people. Uh, some, somehow, I, I don't, don't ask me how, but Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of God. And it's into this darkness of man's spiritual blindness that Jesus comes. And you remember when he announced his arrival in Luke 4.18, he said he had come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners Recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I don't think he was primarily speaking of the recovery of physical blindness here in this verse. He was primarily speaking of the spiritual. And the reason I say that is because he's talking about spiritual reality in each of these situations in that verse. He came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He didn't go around uh, breaking people out of, out of prison and out of their jail cells. He came to proclaim spiritual freedom for those who were prisoners of sin and Satan and, and hell. They were the ones he wanted to break free. He came to set the oppressed free. And you remember that the Jews were waiting for what? In the Messiah. They're waiting for a conqueror. They're waiting for a king to free them from the oppression of Rome. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. Jesus came to set them free from the oppression of sin and Satan and hell. And the same way, he came to give recovery of sight, of sight to the blind. Not primarily for the physically blind, which he actually did a lot of, but he came primarily to give spiritual light to spiritually blind people. He said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That was his purpose. So in the process, he did give physical sight to a number of people. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, on a very human level, we already talked about uh, Christ's compassion. He had compassion on them. He wanted to alleviate the, the physical suffering they're going through. Um, but he, this was also, and we've talked about this earlier in Matthew, uh, these miracles uh, were also there to give proof of his Messiahship, the fact that he is the Son of God. But it was also very much for the purpose of symbolizing what he wanted to do for the soul. All through scripture we see symbols referring to something spiritual. Every time he touched a person's ears to allow them to hear, he was in effect saying, and that's exactly what I wanted to do with your heart 
so you can hear the word of God. Every time he touched a mute person and opened their mouth to speak, he was basically saying, I want you to speak the wonders of God Almighty and proclaim salvation to those who are deaf and, and blind and mute. And every time he raised someone from the dead physically, he was saying, I, I want to give life to the soul and make you, your spirit alive. Just as I am able to give life to the body. That, that, that's why Jesus didn't find it any more difficult to forgive sins than to heal. And you remember when the Pharisees asked him about that, how, how, how can you forgive sins? He's basically saying, what's the difference? I'm showing you by my absolute control over the physical world and natural law that I have control over the spiritual world and the, spiritual, uh, and, and the uh, supernatural laws. And so in the case of these two blind men, I believe before the story's over, these two blind men were not only healed of their physical blindness, but I believe that they were saved as well. And we're going to take a look at that. So they both received physical healing and spiritual healing. And they they demonstrate to us that no matter how involved and how busy our Lord is, that's how we would think, is all kinds of stuff to do all the time, his heart of compassion reaches out to those who cry out for help. Now, let's look at the scene here in verse 29. Again, it's a very simple story, a simple scene. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Now, as you remember, Jesus had finished up his ministry in the Galilee area, had come down and crossed the Jordan, going down through Perea, and that's where he encountered the rich young ruler. And then as he was getting uh, further south, he had to recross the Jordan, and he came to Jericho um, as he had set his face towards Jerusalem. He was on his way to Jerusalem. And, he, and as he was going through, I'm, I'm wondering if he was thinking, this is the last time I'm going to be here. This is the last time I'm going to be here. This is the last time I'm going to be here. But in the midst of the impending doom that, he was, that was going to befall him, he stayed focused on his mission. He stayed focused on being the light and touching and transforming people's lives. In fact, when he recrossed Jordan... He had to move through the city of Jericho, and all the while the crowd was following him, or it was building and building, because they were all in the process of heading up to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. And so he enters Jerusalem, and you know who he encounters there at, at that time, uh, moment in time? Luke chapter 19, verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jer- Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. That's when he encountered Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He, he wanted to see Jesus, uh, who Jesus was, but because, of, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now, there's two reasons why Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus. One was the crowd that was, was there, probably tightly around Jesus, um, and he couldn't see over them. The other one was because he was short. Now, how short was he? Well, the Greek phrase used here is mikros, in stature. We get the word micro. He was micro in stature. Zacchaeus could have very well been a dwarf or the size, perhaps, of of a dwarf. We don't know. But he was very, very short. A man also disdained for being a tax collector who was very wealthy because he had extorted everybody in town. And on top of it all, he was a short little guy that everybody, very literally, looked down with, uh, on with disgust. So he climbs a tree and gets a glimpse of Jesus who sees him, invites himself to this little 
disgusting man's home. And this man's life was transformed. Completely transformed. Why? Because Jesus looked beyond his sin. He looked beyond his fault. Reminds me of Dottie Rambo's song. It says, Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. For it was by grace that bought my liberty. I do not know just why he came to love me so. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. I shall forever lift mine eyes to Calvary to view the cross which Jesus died for me. How marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. That's what Jesus does. Even as he was lifting his own eyes to Calvary, on that trip, he stopped, saw the need, touched, and transformed a life. He could have seen this as an inconvenience, a bother, something so little, literally, it wasn't worth bothering with. I mean, there was something so much more important about to happen, wasn't there? But what's more important than a person's life? That's why Jesus came, didn't he? To save sinners. That was his purpose. But now it's time to leave Jericho and head up to Jerusalem. And we're told as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men were sitting at the, on the, by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now I found something interesting here. It's one of those detailed things that I, that I like to pick out. Uh, periodically. It says here in verse 9, as they were leaving Jericho, this incident happened. If you look at the account in Mark, it also says uh, in telling, telling this story that this all happened as they were leaving Jericho. But then Luke says, as he came near Jericho. Some people would point at this, ah, there's a discrepancy. The Bible can't be inerrant. There, there, there's a fault here. There's a contradiction in the Bible. But the explanation is rather simple if you look at it. And at the same time gives us a glimpse at, again, the profound nature of Jesus' compassion. Now beggars usually sat along the main thoroughfares. That was an obvious place where most people would go by as they were begging. And it was usually near a city gate. People going in and out of the city all the time. So I believe Jesus and this huge crowd were leaving the city, passing through the gate where these men were sitting, walking out of town, the crowd shoving right past these two men, totally ignoring them, totally insignificant as far as what was going on in their minds, and they were just heading out and heading out of the city. But the two men, realizing something's going on here, we can't see it, but there's a huge crowd here. This doesn't usually happen. Uh, even there's a lot of people, it's not this huge crowd. And so they started calling out, wondering what, what's going on. And by the time the blind men were able to ask people in the crowd what was going on, no doubt being ignored by many of them initially, someone finally told them that it was Jesus that they were following. And then they started crying out so loudly that Jesus, as, uh, that Jesus already down the road a ways out of the city I believed, turned around, went back to the men, and asked them, what do you want? I think that's why Luke says, as they approached Jericho. 
they had been leaving. They turned around and as they approached Jericho. So I don't see any discrepancy here. It's just a matter of different way of, of looking at the, uh, the, the passage of the crowd. But what, what it does show me is a deep, profound compassion in the heart of Jesus he, that made him stop and go back. He was already past Jericho. He was on his way. He was going to Jerusalem. But he went back to these two men whom most people saw as worthless, insignificant, irritating. Jesus never sees people that way. Everyone is important to him, especially people who call out to him. Now, verse 30 starts out in the original language stating, Behold. We've talked about this word before. Behold. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we've mentioned behold before. It's a term that is an exclamation. Uh, it refers to something that was surprising, something that was unexpected that took place. Why the behold? Well, it wasn't behold two blind men. The blind men were always there. There's no surprise there. It's not unexpected. It wasn't a shock to see them there. It wasn't behold that they were sitting by the roadside. They always did that. They're day in and day out, morning to evening. They were there by, by the roadside. They were a fixture so why the behold? I think Matthew put in the behold because of what they said. They shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And they call out using his messianic name. That's what surprised Matthew. I mean, these are two beggars for goodness sake. Mark says they were begging. Luke says they were sitting by the wayside. Matthew says they were screaming out the messianic title. Where did they get their information and their faith? It seemed like they knew more theology than the Pharisees did. That's the behold. That's the exclamation. Not that they were blind. Not that they were there. Not that they were begging. Not that they were yelling. It was because of what they said. Now, here's something else that caught my attention and made me wonder. Virtually nowhere in the gospel writings... Do they give the name of people who Jesus has healed? We usually know them by their ailment. And my question was, if we look at Mark, Mark very interestingly names this blind man that was calling out. His name was Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. So my question is, why does he bother to name him here? I mean, there were thousands that Jesus had healed. But Mark makes this personal. And as I was reading and uh, trying to come up with a, a reason, one theologian speculated that when Mark, quote, when Mark eventually pens the gospel, again, speculation is not said, when Mark eventually pens the gospel and the letters are written to the church to read about accounts of the life of our Lord, when they can sit down and read this, they'll have there the story of the conversion of one who by now they greatly love. It's as if Mark is saying, and you know, and you know who one of those guys was? It was none other than your friend Bartimaeus. And so he picks up a little of the history of one of the beloved brothers in the church by the time the gospel would be read by some. Interesting speculation. Makes sense. Don't know. So these men were crying out, and the word krazo, the 
word krazo is being used. It means to scream. It's a, a used in the New Testament for the screechings and screaming of demon-possessed uh, people. Mark chapter 5. It's used for the loud calling, continual loud calling of crows. It's used for, for the loud anguish cry of a mother giving birth to a child. This is the kind of cry that these men were, were, were vocalizing. And the verb tense indicates that it was a constant screaming. It wasn't just once. I mean, they were yelling at the top of their voice, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. A cry of anguish, a cry of desperation, a cry of pain. They knew that if Jesus gets out of hearing range, they're going to be doomed to blindness for the rest of their life. They knew this is the only one who could do this for them. They were desperate. And they were so persistent that a commentator by the name of F.F. F. Bruce, some of you may have heard of him, says they refused to be bludgeoned into silence by the indifferent crowd. It says there in verse 32, the crowd rebuked them. It wasn't just, hey guys, let's keep it down over here. They rebuked them. That was it's a strong term. They rebuked them, told them, be quiet. But they shouted all the Lord, uh, louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They felt their needs so deeply, they knew that if, they, if this Jesus they had been hearing about didn't do something for them, they'd never see their life changed. I think their hearts were in the right place. They knew they, they didn't deserve anything. and they, they, they were crying out for what? They're crying out for mercy. There is no merit in mercy. Mercy is freely given without obligation. It usually comes from a heart of compassion. Now, it's interesting to note that as physically blind as they were, and we alluded to this earlier, they seem to have been able to see more spiritually than the Pharisees and Sadducees because they cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. That's Jesus' messianic title. They had, they had to have some, come to some place in their minds and hearts where they had come to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, how deep was their faith? We don't know. But there was something there. Otherwise, I don't think they would have been screaming so frantically that he do something for them. They had no doubt in their mind that this was their only chance. But when they say son of David, they were identifying him as the Messiah. Way back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah is identified as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God gave the covenant and promised that there would be a greater king than David and says that he would be David's greater son. And so son of David became the title by which Messiah was designated by all the Jews. It's kind of a double act of faith here on these men's part. They, they had the faith in his power to heal, uh, because they, they've heard the stories. They've heard what Jesus has been doing about his miracles, and they have faith in his person as the Messiah. How they get to that point, it doesn't really say, but uh, there's some speculation that they heard the news, perhaps, of the resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, for goodness sake, that kind of a story, that's going to spread like, like wildfire. Perhaps they'd heard about the preaching of John the Baptist uh, three years before. This bizarre preacher's out there calling for repentance because why? The Messiah was coming. 
And all the talk about the coming of the Messiah from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 29, 18, may have stuck in their minds that saying that when the Messiah comes, in that day, it says, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. So I'm sure if they had heard that anywhere in the synagogues, that would have stuck in their minds. When the Messiah comes, he's going to allow us to see. For whatever reason, they had enough faith that he was the Messiah and it caught Jesus' attention. The desire, the need, the faith, it was all there. Alfred Edersheim, theologian and biblical historian, says, says it beautifully. He says, the faith of the blind rose to the full height of divine possibility. Isn't that neat? The faith of the blind rose to the full height of divine possibility. In verse 32, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Jesus stopped. Even that phrase is significant to us. Jesus stopped. Jesus loves us so much that even though he has a whole world upon his shoulders that he is caring for and that he is loving for, he will stop for us. Just let that sink in a while. Jesus stopped and called them. How did he call them? Well, Mark's account says Jesus stopped and said, call him. Uh, he told someone to, to go and call them. Could have been one of his disciples. It doesn't say who it was, but uh, somebody very close to Jesus. Um, that's another reason why it seems that they were probably outside of the city and had to turn around to uh, go back and talk to these men. So they, they called out to the blind man in Mark 10, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you and throwing off his uh, clo cloak, throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And verse 32 tells us that Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? Was his question. Foolish question. I mean, seriously, didn't Jesus, wasn't that obvious? Didn't Jesus already know? Well, yes. But he wanted the men to be specific. They had said they wanted mercy, and that's, that, that's a good start. But it's too general. Jesus deals in specifics. I think oftentimes Christians pray too generally. Lord, bless. Lord, help. Don't get me wrong. Those aren't bad prayers. I'm, I'm not cutting down those prayers. But just like with a blind man, have mercy on us, it was too general. It's not, and it's not a bad prayer, but Jesus wants us to be specific. What do you actually want me to do? Name it. Do we have faith enough to be specific? See, it's so much easier to not have our faith tested if we can be general. Whatever happens, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. But if we're being specific, then we're expecting Jesus to do something specific. And that might shake us up. Are we, do we have that faith? I think this question was not only for the blind men to, to state exactly what their expectations were, but it was for the crowd to hear as well, so that he would one more time demonstrate to them that he was indeed the, uh, the, the, the Lord, the Son of David, the Messiah. What do you want me to do for you? And their answer was very simple in verse 33. Lord, they, they answered, we want 
our sight. In a very real sense, they were confessing their blindness. And that leads to their transformation. You see, there's a lot of people who who have a hard time admitting. We all have a hard time admitting our weaknesses, our failures, our faults. And in our day and age, when everybody is told that their truth, whatever that is, is good and okay, it's hard to admit our blindness. It's hard to admit we're wrong and we don't know everything. But we need to come to that point, and that's when Jesus will step in. That's what he did here with these men. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Jesus had compassion. Again, that's really the overarching message of this passage. Nothing would have taken place if Jesus didn't have compassion. He felt their need. He felt their pain. He hurt with them. There's so much love and tenderness in him. He reached out and he touched their eyes. And Luke says, he said, when he touched them, receive your sight. It's interesting that the Greek verb here to, to see is anablepo. Blepo means to see. Ana means again. Isn't that interesting? Which seems to indicate that they had perhaps become blind later in life. That they had been able to see at one point, And now... He allowed them to see again. And so he restores their sight to them again. And out of compassion, he healed them. How well do you think he healed them? I think he healed them completely. He healed them wholly. In fact, that's, that's how Mark actually describes it in Mark chapter 10, verse 52. Listen, he says, go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Now listen carefully. The Greek word used here is not aomai which is the typical word to heal physically. That's not the word that Jesus used. The word used is sozo. Do you remember us talking about that word sozo uh, a while back? When we were talking about the healing of the lepers, remember? In in fact, Mark says here, your faith has sozo desozoed you. He used the word two times. Your faith has saved you. That's a classic New Testament word to save. I believe that in using that term, that indicates to us that these men were both physically healed and spiritually healed, that they were also saved. They were saved, they were redeemed, they were made whole. Well, you may ask, well, was everybody that Jesus touched and healed saved then? No. Again, if we go back to Luke chapter 17, uh, talking about those ten lepers, you remember the story. Uh, they came to Jesus and they, they wanted to be healed. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And on the way, all ten were cleansed. The word there is katarizo. That means, uh, it's a form of healing, cleansing. They were all katarizoed, cleansed of leprosy. How many of them came back? One. And he said to that man, your faith has sozoed you. Your faith has saved you. And I believe there were ten people that were cleansed, ten lepers that were cleansed, one was saved. The declaration that came from these blind men, Lord, Son of David, Lord, Messiah. There was a heartfelt need and desire for Jesus. Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, saw their need, had compassion on them, and healed them completely, body and soul. 
It makes me think of that song, He Touched Me, sung by the Gaither vocal band. He touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. You know what else makes me believe that he transformed their lives? Over in Mark again, chapter 10, uh, after Jesus touched him, he said, go, your faith has healed you. He said, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received uh, his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus didn't say, come, follow me. He said, go, go your way. Yet they wanted to follow him, and they did. And, and, and in Luke's account, he says, they followed Jesus, glorifying God. Another indicator that their hearts were changed, not only their eyes were given physical sight, but they were given a spiritual sight as well. Simple story. A lot of lessons. I guess a question for us this morning has Jesus touched you? Has Jesus touched you? His, his compassion is still, is still there. Do we believe? Sometimes we are our own worst enemy, aren't we? We allow stuff around us to get in our way. We begin to doubt we allow ourselves to think that I can handle this, I can do this, I can fix this, I can, make, I can make the changes in myself. Do we believe? Not only, maybe more specifically, not only do we get in our, our way, we get in God's way. God wants to transform, God wants to change, he wants to be in the forefront. How much are we willing to trust Jesus? Serious question. How much are we willing to trust Jesus? Enough to be very specific about what we want him to do in our lives. Enough to give our lives completely and totally him, trust him completely as these men did. Is our trust more on stuff that's going on in, in, uh, in the world around us? The news other things, other events that are going, going around, are we putting more faith in that rather than our faith in God? Is our trust truly on Jesus? Those blind men, they put all their hope, all their trust, all their faith in him, and they cried out to him. Can we do the same? Father, this morning, I pray that we will be able to do that, that we can do that, but that we are doing that. Father, if there are areas in our lives that we are doubting you or that we are not trusting you the way you have called us to trust you 100% in every aspect of our lives, I pray that you would change, that you would transform our lives, that you would bring conviction to, to our hearts and put you first in every decision and every act that we do. Father, I pray that you would help Build our faith, and as we exercise our faith little by little, you are going to give us greater, allow greater tests perhaps to come to us, and we need to exercise our faith even greater, and then greater the next time, and then greater the next time. And as a, the faith of a little mustard seed grows into to a huge tree, that's how our faith will be built as you work in and through us. So, Father, do a new work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name.